The Guardian. Order. Questions to the Prime Minister. Mr Lawrence Robertson. Question number one, Mr Speaker. Thank you, Mr Speaker. This morning I had meetings with ministerial colleagues and others, and in addition to my duties in this House, I shall have further such meetings later today. Mr Lawrence Robertson. The Prime Minister will be aware of the very strong uptake of academy status of schools in Gloucestershire, but is he aware of the enormous differences in funding which puts those schools at the bottom of the league table in terms of the so-called laxeg funding? I welcome the government's move towards a national funding formula, but in the meantime, will you look at the very serious situation in Gloucestershire with regard to those schools? Yes. No, my honourable friend is quite right. We need to sort out this problem even before looking at national funding formula. It is a funding formula that we inherited and I believe it's flawed and that's why we're reforming it. The Secretary of State has met with academy heads in his constituency and will very happily discuss uh, with him how we can deal with this, this problem. I think the growing evidence is, is that academy schools are not just good for the pupils who go to those schools but actually by raising standards and aspirations in those areas they're actually raising the standards of all schools at the same time. Ed Miliband. Yeah. Mr. Mr. Speaker, Mr. Mr. Speaker the, the Prime Minister told us that unemployment would fall in each year of this Parliament. Today, unemployment rose for the sixth month in a row. Does he think it has anything to do with his government? The, the government takes absolute responsibility for everything that happens in our economy and I take responsibility for that. And look, any increase in unemployment is disappointing and it's obviously a tragedy for the person who becomes unemployed and can lead to real difficulty for that family and that is why we're taking so much action to try and help people to get back into work. Now if you look at the figures today, I think it is noteworthy that while the increase in unemployment is hugely unwelcome, there is still an increase in the number of people employed, another 18,000 people in work. What that shows is that we need more private sector employment, we need to move further and faster on that agenda. It's also noteworthy to note that there is a small decrease in long-term unemployment and I hope that shows that the schemes like the work programme we're introducing are beginning to have an effect. But again, we need them to go further and faster. There is not one ounce of complacency in this government. We'll do everything we can to get people back to work. Ed Miliband. Mr Speaker, doesn't the Prime Minister understand when he boasts about rising employment, it just shows how out of touch he is? And, and, and in some parts of London, and in some parts of London, a hundred people are chasing three vacancies. That is the situation people are facing. Now, can he confirm that under his policies, far from things getting better over the coming year, he expects things to get worse and unemployment to rise to 2.8 million? Well, forecasts are no longer set out by the government, they're set out by the Independent Office of Budget Responsibility. And unlike, and unlike in his day, these forecasts are not fixed and fiddled by ministers, they're set out by independent economists. What the government's responsibility is, is to do everything we can to help people into work. That's why we have the work programme that is helping three million people. That is why we have the youth contract that is going to get subsidised private sector jobs for 160 
60,000 young people. That is why we have work experience for 250,000 young people and half of those are off benefits within two months. That is 20 times better value than the Future Jobs Fund. Now, as I say, there is no boasting about anything. What we have here is growth in the private sector, contraction in the public sector, but we need to get our economy moving and key to that is having low interest rates that his plans were put at risk. Mr Speaker, he doesn't seem to understand. The reason the OBR figures matter is that they show over the next year unemployment will get worse, not better, on his policies. And, he can, and nothing he can say can deny that. That long list of policies, according to the independent OBR, will make no difference. Let's talk about young people. In the last, in the last year, can he confirm that we have now 147,000 young people out of work for more than six months that's double what it was a year ago, an increase of 102%. Why has he allowed it to happen? Well, let me give him the figures. Over the last year, un unemployment amongst young people, measured by the independent labour organisation, the proper way of measuring the figures, is up by 7%. That is far too high. It's not the 40% increase we had under labour, but it is far too high. What we need to do is help those young people into work, and that is exactly what our programmes are doing. But let me just make this point, because I think it is important. There is a fundamental difference between the way this government measures youth unemployment and the way the last government did. This is important because his government, his government counted young people who were on job seekers allowance but in any form of scheme as not unemployed. This government is saying until you get a permanent job we'll measure you as unemployed. That is right. That's not complacent. That's frank, straightforward and what we never got from them. Mr Speaker, it really is back to the 1980s. A Tory, a Tory government, a Tory, a Tory, a Tory government blaming unemployment on the figures. No wonder he's rehired Lord Young, Mr. Speaker. It's note the employment secretary in the 1980s. Now, on long-term youth unemployment, he's wrong on the facts. Long-term youth unemployment, which has that scarring effect on our young people, desperate for work, out of work for more than six months, that has doubled. That has doubled in the last year. So however much he twists and turns about the figures, can he confirm that central fact it's up by 102% in the last year? I've explained the figures and if you look at young people, if you look at the number of young people who've been out of work for longer than 12 months, that number has started to go down. Now that's not nearly enough. Far more needs to be done, but that is what the work programme is all about and that's what he needs to understand. But there's a context to all of this. If we want to get unemployment down, we've got to keep interest rates down. And we've had a reminder in recent days what happens if you don't have a plan to get on top of your deficit, get on top of your debts and get your economy moving. That's what he doesn't understand. And what you have is a government that is absolutely clear about its plans, an opposition that has absolutely no idea. Last year he marched against the cuts, now he tells us he accepts the cuts. And yet, and, yet, and yet today he's telling us he wants to spend more and borrow more. He's so incompetent he can't even do a U-turn properly. Mr. Speaker, he is simply... Uh,
the house must try to calm down and contain itself. Ed Miliband. Mr Speaker, I know he doesn't want to talk about the young people out of work in this country because he's embarrassed by his record and what's happening, but he owes it to them to tell the facts as they are about what is happening to them. I come back to this point. The Prime Minister said in his answer that long-term unemployment among young people is going down. It's not going down, Mr Speaker. It's going up. It's going up. Now, he mentions the work programme. He introduced the work programme with great fanfare in June. What has happened to long-term youth unemployment since he introduced his work programme? Well, well, let, let, me, let me give him the figures. There, there are far, I will give him the figures exactly. There are far too many young people who are long-term unemployed. There are, are 246,000 young people unemployed for over a year, but that is down 11,000 on the last quarter. Now, that is not enough. We want to do more. But it's because we've got the work programme, because we've got the youth contract, because we've got 400,000 apprenticeship schemes, because we've got the 250,000 thousand people going into work experience, we are making a difference. Now why doesn't he come up with something constructive instead of just knocking everybody down? I'll tell him what he should do. He should change course. It's his policy. Unemployment rising. Why is unemployment rising? Because he is cutting too far and too fast. It's his record. However much he twists and turns, it's his record. That's why unemployment is going up. And what we have, Mr. Speaker, what we have is women's unemployment, the highest since the last time there was a Tory government, youth unemployment, the highest since the last time there was a Tory government, and unemployment, higher than the last time there was a Tory government. Isn't the truth? The defining characteristic of this government is it stands aside and does nothing as thousands of people find themselves unemployed. Uh, Mr Speaker, to be fair to the Honourable Gentleman, he does actually change course every day. So uh, he's an expert in changing course. The, La the Labour's Shadow Chancellor, Labour's Shadow Chancellor said uh, two days ago, my starting point is we're going to have to keep all the cuts. That is what he said. And then Labour's deputy leader said yesterday, we're not accepting the government's cuts. We're totally opposed to them and we're fighting them. He is flip-flopping on a daily basis. No wonder. No wonder Labour's founder of Labour's business forum had this to say. At a time when the nation needs strong political leadership, Labour offers nothing. The pro-business, pragmatic approach to wealth and enterprise have all gone. Instead, there is a vision and a leadership vacuum. What total adequate testimony of what stands opposite. Stephen Phillips. Thank you, Mr Speaker. My right honourable friend will be aware that I recently raised the case of my late constituent, Mr Martin Pratt, with the Armed Forces Minister, as also he will be aware of the excellent Fighting Fit report written by my honourable friend, the member for South West Wiltshire, dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder amongst veterans. Now, due to uh, the stigma often attached to mental illness, many veterans wait years before seeking appropriate help, and I hope 
that my right honourable friend can tell the House what plans the government has in this area so that those who do need help can seek it at the appropriate moment. I I think my honourable friend is entirely right to to raise this issue. The mental scars that people who serve this country often receive can be every bit as deep as the physical scars, and it's not something that we've always accepted and understood properly. That's why I think the report fighting fit by my honourable friend, the member for South West Wiltshire, is so important as someone with real experience and understanding of this. We've accepted and implemented almost all of its recommendations. We've launched the 24-hour combat stress support health health line. We're introducing the enhanced mental health assessments for, for service personnel and the Veterans Information Service we hope to get up and running in April of this year. Mr Ian McKenzie. Thank you, Mr Speaker. With the tragic accident involving the cruise ship Costa Concordia and with the 50-plus liners the same size or bigger which will visit the dock of Greenock on the Clyde in the coming months and year ahead, does the Prime Minister still think it is a correct decision to close the Clyde Coast Guard station? Good God. Well, first of all, the case in Italy is clearly a tragic case, and our hearts should go out to the people who have lost loved ones, people from countries right across the world. And I think we need to wait and see what the exact cause of the accident was before we jump to conclusions about any changes in regulations or other things that need to be changed. But if there are changes that need to be made, including to the issue he raises, of course we'll make them. Miss Anne McIntosh. Prime Minister, Mr Speaker, has very kindly undertaken to bring forward a comprehensive water bill early in the next parliamentary session. Will he end the uncertainty for water customers and industry alike by publishing the draft bill now so we can have proper parliamentary scrutiny? Um, yeah, I, I can um, say to my, my honourable friend that we will be publishing a draft water bill for pre-legislative scrutiny in the, in the coming months. Uh, as she knows, there are many important parts to this water bill. One part that I think does stand out is the promise we've made and the funding that we've supplied to help cut water bills in the southwest of our country by £50 through April 2013. This does address a historic unfairness where people in the southwest felt that they've paid unfair charges to provide clean beaches uh, for many of us who don't live in the southwest. And I'm delighted we're going to be able to make progress on this issue. Yeah, David yeah. Hamilton. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. In America, six directors. Uh, from the bailed-out Freddie Mac and, and uh, Fannie Mae company ha- for, have been taken to court for gross m- mismanagement. The, SA, the FSA in this country say they can't bring enforcement action against the Royal Bank of Scotland because they, they haven't got any legal tender. Will the Prime Minister consider introducing a legal sanction of a strict liability into his draft, draft financial services bill so that those responsible for the banking crisis will be taken to task? After all, Prime Minister, we are in, in, in this together. I think the Honourable Gentleman makes an important point, and the whole point about overhauling our financial services regulation is it gives us the opportunity to look around the rest of the world, see who has tougher penalties, and work out whether we can introduce them to our system. And that's why we'll be introducing this bill with a major overhaul of how the FSA and the Bank of England work and dealing with a regulatory system that wasn't working properly. Andrew George. (laughs) A year ago, the Prime Minister told me that the, the reason for the, at the time, new health bill was, and I quote, simply that this country now has European levels of health spending but does not have European levels of success. Now that we know that that isn't the case, will the Prime Minister please shelve shelve the the disruptive and destructive bill which is struggling in another place, go back to the coalition agreement and build up from there? 
great respect for my honourable friend, but I don't agree with him on this one. With the health bill, a huge exercise was undertaken, which the Deputy Prime Minister and I both played quite a large role in, of actually listening to health professionals, to doctors, to nurses, to associated health professionals, to understand what they most wanted to see in the NHS reform bill. And that is what we're delivering. He says that it's not the case uh, that uh, we have outcomes that are less than some parts of Europe. I'm afraid it is the case. In some cases, we could be doing a lot better. And to argue just that the NHS simply needs money and not reform, I don't believe is right. Catherine McKinnell. Mr Speaker, in the North East, unemployment amongst women is rising at twice the rate of men. Where does the Prime Minister think the women's place is? In the home? in the workplace or in the job centre? Well, I want to see many more women have the opportunity to be in the workplace and actually what you've seen in the figures, of course there's a disappointing increase in unemployment amongst women but if actually you look since the election there are 59,000 more women in work today than there were at the time of the last election. But I'm not satisfied with that, that is why we're boosting childcare for two-year-olds, three-year-olds and four-year-olds to help women into work. We're introducing through universal credit, support for all women with childcare who work, not just those who work over 16 hours, and obviously by lifting over a million people out of tax, the majority of whom are women, that also helps women into the workforce. That is what I want to see. Karen Lumley. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Last week I met a couple in Redditch, Prime Minister, who were appalled that a family in their area were getting more on benefits and they were, they were earning working full-time. Does he think that's right or fair? I think my honourable friend makes an important point. And let me say this about the, the benefit cap. I think we owe it to people who work hard, who do the right thing, who pay their taxes, to make sure there are some limits on welfare. And what we're saying with the benefit cap is that a family can get up to £26,000 in benefit. You would have to earn £35,000 in order to achieve that standard of living. So I do believe that the benefit cap is fair, and that is why we're going to introduce one. Mr David Winnick. I feel any shame at all for some of the most vulnerable people in our society, certainly cancer and heart patients, will undoubtedly be financially penalised as a result of the measures going through the Lords. Is it any wonder people say it's the same old Tories and the Tories are a nasty party? I don't accept what the Honourable Gentleman says. The whole point about employment and support allowance is there are two groups. There are those who cannot work, who need help in the support group, and many people will go straight into that group and will be able to receive that benefit for as long as they need it. And actually, if you look at what uh, we have said and look at the report by Professor Harrington, there are going to be more cancer sufferers getting benefits and actually fewer people facing the face-to-face -face interview. He shakes his head. He should look at the evidence before asking the question. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Um, I was shocked to discover that mainstream terrestrial television carries adverts for online bingo at five o'clock in the afternoon, that 31 hours and 55 minutes each week is dedicated to live casino betting and ga gaming, which is classified as teleshopping since 2009. At a time when there's 1.45 trillion pounds worth of personal debt in this country. We're encouraging people to be moderate in their expectations and behaviour. Would the Prime Minister please protect consumers, children and the vulnerable from this kind of activity by asking for a review of by Ofcom? Yep. Uh, order! Order! We, order! The question was too long. The Prime Minister. 
Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I think the Honourable Lady does raise an important issue about um, gambling advertisement on, on television. I'm all in favour of deregulation and trying to allow uh, uh, businesses to get on and succeed. Gambling programmes and betting advertising weren't permitted until the last government allowed them in 2007. They are strictly uh, regulated by Ofcom and the Advertising Standards Authority. But what I'd say to the Honourable Lady, it's not just a question of regulation. I think it's also a question of responsibility for those companies concerned. Anyone who enjoys watching a football match, you do see quite aggressive um, on, on adver advertisements on the television. I think those companies have got to ask themselves whether they are behaving responsibly when they do that. Meg Hillier. On the subject of gambling, in Hackney we have 90 bookies, three times the national average. Will the Prime Minister listen to the debate that took place yesterday and take action this Friday and instruct his ministers to support the private members bill before this House, which will give local authorities more planning powers over bookies? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I will certainly look at the debate that she mentions and look at the ideas uh, within it. We're all for localism, giving local authorities uh, uh, greater powers in these sorts of regards, and I'll look at the suggestions she makes. Andrew Rosendale. Yeah. Uh, will, will the Prime Minister agree with me that in this, the 30th year of the Falklands War, the actions of the Argentine government are wholly deplorable. And will he remind Argentina that they lost the Falklands War and that it is up to the Falklanders to determine their own future? I think, first of all, it is very important that we commemorate the Falklands War on this year, the 30th anniversary, and we remember all of those who served and who fought so hard and those who gave their lives and didn't come home. We should remember all of those people this year. The absolutely vital point is that we are clear that the future of the Falkland Islands is a matter for the people themselves. And as long as they want to remain part of the United Kingdom and be part and be British, they should be able to do so. That is absolutely key. I'm determined we should make sure that our defences and everything else is in order, which is why the National Security Council discussed this issue yesterday. But the key point is we support the Falkland Auckland Islanders' right to self-determination. And what the Argentinians have been saying recently, I would argue, is actually far more like colonialism. Because these people want to remain British, and the Argentinians want them to do something else. Yeah. Nick Smith. Yeah. 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 Mr Speaker. <laughs> We've seen a rise in unemployment today to over 3,000 in Blaine Gwent. A 16% increase Ooh. in the past year. Shame. When does the Prime Minister expect unemployment to start falling? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The forecasts are set out by the Office of Budget Responsibility. It's for them to make the forecast, and they do expect unemployment to be lower at the end of this Parliament than at the start, and for employment to be higher. The job of the government is to try and do everything it can to help his constituents into work, via the work programme, with the youth contract, with the apprenticeship schemes, with the work experience, but above all, keeping interest rates low so our economy can grow and we don't fall into the mistakes that others in Europe have. Order. Closed question. Charlotte Leslie. Number 10, Mr Speaker. Uh, thank you, Mr. Speaker. The Honourable Lady raises um, an important issue about the, uh, the Working Time Directive and its effect on the NHS. Look, nobody wants to go back to the time when junior doctors were working 80 or 90 hours a week. But I think we all see in our own constituencies that the Working Time Directive has sometimes had a bad effect on the NHS and particularly on training programmes for junior doctors. And that is why the government is discussing this issue uh, with the Royal Colleges and others to make sure 
ensure that we can have flexibility in this vitally important area. Charlotte Leslie. I thank the Prime Minister for his answer. Does he share widespread concerns coming largely from the medical profession themselves that while we wait for lengthy EU processes to reconsider the directive across Europe, where it hasn't even been decided what it is that they're going to be discussing about the directive, we're seeing a critical undermining of junior doctors, and the junior doctors themselves are often saying that. We're seeing an erosion of the future professionalism of the NHS, and dare I say it, putting patient care and patient lives at risk. What steps can he take to, to ensure we sort this out? quickly. I think the Honourable Lady is right because this frankly has got nothing to do with the single market. This is to do with how we run our health service and in particular what it's affected as I said is often training programmes for junior doctors often in rural areas where we don't have such large uh, uh, hospitals. So what we can do to sort this out is the health and business secretaries are committed to revising the directive at an EU level to give the NHS the flexibility it needs to deliver that best safest service to patients and we'll work urgently to bring that about. On the closed question, Mr Dennis McShane. Is the Prime Minister aware that every single medical problem at a hospital in my constituency since I've been an MP is related to weekend working by exhausted junior doctors? Far from this directive being a problem, it is a solution to the fact that we have had far too many exhausted doctors in charge of patients. I, I don't doubt what, um, well, in fact, I do doubt what the Honourable Gentleman says. I can't believe that every problem in his hospital is down to that one problem. All I can say is the local hospital that serves my constituents in Chipping Norton was threatened with massive downgrading, partly because of the Working Time Directive, because they couldn't supply the training modules for junior doctors. And this seemed a classic example of actually the cart being put in front of the horse. We ought to be determining what hospitals we want and then thinking about the training modules. And and it was the EU Working Time Directive that was getting in the way. Mr David Rutsley. I welcome this week's announcement of closer cooperation between financial centres in Hong Kong and London, which will help make the city a hub for the Chinese RMB currency market. Does, my prime, does the Prime Minister agree this helps highlight the opportunities for trade in Asia and the importance of promoting this country's commitment to free trade and showing that this country is open for business? I think my honourable friend makes a vitally important point. Clearly, the markets in Europe are going to be difficult. 50% of what we export goes to the EU, and we're seeing a, a freezing effect across the European Union. But the rest of the world economy is growing, and we need to get out there and sell to those markets. And I'm pleased to say that exports to China were up by 20% last year. I think the arrangement that my right honourable friend, the Chancellor, has uh, come to, which is actually going to make London one of the great RMB trading centres, I think is one important breakthrough. But we need many more like that. Jim Sheridan. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Could the Prime Minister clarify what the coalition government's position is on inheritance tax? My constituency recently received correspondence from the junior partner in the coalition government stating, and I quote, if the Tories were governing alone, they would be cutting inheritance tax for millionaires and they would, they would pay for it by reducing public spending even more. Is that true? <laughs> the, the position on, the, on inheritance tax is covered in the coalition agreement. Mr Richard Graham. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Last week on the Syrian border, I met Syrian army deserters who refused to kill their fellow citizens and a small child wounded by that regime. 
If things there are to get better, not worse, the world must stop selling arms to Syria. What evidence does the Prime Minister have of countries shipping arms to that regime? Well, I think the Honourable Gentleman makes an extremely important point. Uh, and I think Britain needs to lead the way in making sure we tighten the sanctions, the travel bans, the asset freezes uh, on, on Syria. In terms of who is actually helping the Syrian government to oppress their people, there is now growing evidence that Iran is providing a huge amount of support and there have been some interceptions of some shipments by Turkey which are particularly interesting in this regard but people should also know that Hezbollah is also an organization that is standing up and supporting this wretched tyrant who's killing so many of his own people. Mark Lazarevich. The Prime Minister will no doubt be aware of a report from international aid agencies this morning saying how the crisis in the Horn of Africa was made worse by the delay in the international community responding. They've warned that a similar crisis now is threatening in West Africa. What will the government do to try and ensure a speedier international response? I think the Honourable Gentleman raises a very important point, and I'll study this report carefully. My understanding is actually the British aid effort was very swift at getting aid into the Horn of Africa and was really leading the pack, both in terms of the extent of the response, the money committed, but also the speed at which it went in. Clearly the Horn of Africa is a very difficult place to deliver aid to, not least because of the control Shabab has, effectively a terrorist organisation in large parts of Somalia. But I'll look carefully about what he says in terms of West Africa and make sure we learn any available lessons. Mr Gavin Barwell. Mr Speaker. On the 26th of October I raised the case of my constituent, 14-year-old Lillian Groves, who was killed outside her home by a driver under the influence of drugs. Prime Minister kindly met her family to talk about the case for changing the law so that we can deal with the menace of drug driving, something that I believe owes support right across the House. Can my right honourable friend update the House on progress? Well, I pay tribute to the work that my honourable friend is carrying out on this issue. I think it is important that we take this issue of drug driving seriously. As he knows, we are committed to making the drug testing equipment available for use in police stations as soon as possible. But the case that he's making, which is that you need an equivalent law to drink driving, I do think is one that has got a great strength. We're examining it closely in government, and clearly we need to look at whether there'll be an opportunity in the second legislative session to take forward the measure that I know he'll be campaigning for very hard. Mr Paul Goggins. Speaker, does the Prime Minister share my concern that yesterday's ruling by the European Court of Human Rights that Abu Qatada cannot be deported? And if he does, will, it, will he agree to initiate all-party discussions, focused not on rhetoric about ripping up the Human Rights Act, but how in practice this court could operate more proportionately so that rights are respected but the safety of the public is always paramount. I I agree wholeheartedly with what the Right Honourable Gentleman has said. I think this judgment is difficult to understand, frankly, because huge efforts have been gone to by the British government, both this one and the one that he served in, to have a deportation with assurances agreement with Jordan to make sure people wouldn't be uh, mistreated. In this case, the European Court of Human Rights has found that uh, he wasn't going to be tortured, but they were worried about the process of the court case in Jordan. It's immensely frustrating. I do think a country 
country like Britain that has got such a long tradition of human rights should be able to deport people who mean us harm. That principle is vitally important. We're not just going to have strong rhetoric about it. I'm going to Strasbourg next week to make the argument that as we are chairing the Council of Europe, this is a good time to actually make reforms to the European Court of Human Rights and make sure it acts in a more proportionate way. Mr Aidan Burley. Thank you, Mr Speaker. On the 26th of March 2010, a two-and-a-half-year-old boy named Job Felton was kidnapped from his home in Cannock Chase and taken to Thailand by his mother. Six months later, his father finally tracked him down in a remote village, finding his son couldn't speak, had his teeth broken and bruises all over his body. He believes that had he not got him back then, Job would have been sold. Each year in the UK, over 500 children are kidnapped in similar circumstances. Will the Prime Minister meet with me and Job's father, Sean Felson, who has set up a charity called Abducted Angels and is in the gallery today to discuss what the government can do to help parents of abducted children like Job? My right hon. Friend is absolutely right to raise this case. It's a simply appalling case and any parent can't help to be absolutely chilled to the bone about what happened to, to this poor, poor boy. I think it's absolutely vital we put in place the best possible arrangements. As he knows, um, CEOPS, the Child Exploitation and Online Protection System, that's going to be put into the National Crime Agency. I very much hope we'll be able to legislate for the National Crime Agency and make sure it's properly resourced because, as he says, it's vitally important that when these appalling acts happen, we get on top of them right away. The early time, the early effort is absolutely vital in saving these children. Dennis Skinner. (laughs) When when does the Prime Minister expect to be cross-examined by the Levison inquiry? Doesn't he agree that the British people deserve an answer as to why he appointed one of Murdoch's top lieutenants Andy Coulson to the heart of the British government. I will be delighted to appear at the Leveson inquiry whenever I'm invited and I'm sure other politicians will have exactly the same view and I will answer all the questions when that happens. It's good to see the honourable gentleman on such good form. I often say to my children, no need to go to the National History Museum to see a dinosaur. Come to the House of Commons at about half past twelve. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.